live. And um, this is going to be our first ever Gen Z report. And you will see them. Um, and maybe at some point in the future episode, you'll get to see me too. But today is not a good day for that. So I'm going to introduce the, our Gen Z um, team that are going to be doing this. And we're going to see how this goes. This is our first time doing it. So first, I'm going to bring in Christina and Sam because they're in the studio. And we're um, in a minute, everyone will introduce themselves as well. This is Brayden and CJ. And um, these kids, I, I know I, you guys shouldn't call you kids on the show, but um, the, they're going to go through and they're going to introduce themselves and they have a whole program. And this is a, this is a work in progress. So um, let's just see how it goes. And that's it. So without further ado. Okay, uh, I will uh, kick us off. Uh, hello, my name is CJ. My pronouns are he, him, and I am in the Northeast uh, Florida area. Hi, everyone. I'm Brayden. You can refer to me by he, him, and I'm coming to you from the middle of suburban Wisconsin. Hi, I'm Sam. Uh, I'm also he, him. I'm here in the studio in South Florida with Christina and Jen and... I'll let Christina, now that I sort of... <laughs> yes, I'm there. also in the studio. Um, my pronouns are she, her, and my name is Christina. Okay. Uh, so what we have uh, for everyone who's tuning in today is we're going to be going over a few different current events. Uh, our events are going to be the uh, Wisconsin uh, Supreme Court race that is happening uh, for the judicial race. Uh, we're going to be talking about our the uh, most recent uh, abortion ban that has happened in Florida, where it has gone down to six weeks. Uh, we are going to be talking about uh, criticism of uh, Mexico and how other uh, countries are treated in relation to crime statistics and fear mongering. Uh, and then we're going to be talking about uh, union uh, representation uh, within the United States um, and how that, that is uh, working for our uh, most recent events. The, after that, uh, our main topic today is we're going to be discussing uh, media literacy, uh, both from media and how it's been uh, perceived as trustworthy as time has gone on, uh, as well as uh, what the uh, current generations are feeling on that. Uh, this is going to be a kind of hybrid setup where we're going to be talking uh, on information and informing you of what is going on before giving our personal uh, opinions, thoughts, and perspectives. So uh, without further ado, uh, the first thing is our uh, Wisconsin case. So the, for those of you who are uh, not aware, the uh, Wisconsin judicial case uh, race is uh, the, for the Supreme Court uh, of Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin currently has a four to three conservative leaning uh, Supreme Court. Uh, and this is something that could flip it to four three uh, for a non-conservative uh, leaning court. Uh, this case is also one of the most funded uh, races in 2023, and to my knowledge, the most well-funded uh, race uh, for a judicial judge period. Uh, technically, judges are not supposed to have a political affiliation, but there absolutely is political connotations uh, between the two races. Uh, of the winners of the primaries, uh, we are looking at uh, Janet, uh, and I'm not quite sure how to pronounce her last name. Uh, Janet Kotasowicz. Thank you. Uh, and then uh, Daniel 
uh, Kelly. Uh, the importance of this race is uh, you have several things going on. Uh, first is this is a race that can definitely uh, influence abortion rights in uh, the state of Wisconsin. Uh, currently, there is a law that was passed in the 1800s uh, that would channel, hey, uh, that if were to it were to go back into effect, uh, which is what the Supreme Court is going to be weighing in on, uh, could just make it an outright ban. We'll get more into abortion later. Uh, but... It also has a major uh, factor on gerrymandering. Uh, Wisconsin uh, has been very purplish uh, historically, uh, where it's been very close uh, with uh, in its races and for on the uh, state level. However, within the state, uh, there have been times where, due to gerrymandering, uh, the uh, Democrats have won over fifty percent uh, of the party votes. Uh, and then gotten less than 40% of representation in Congress. Uh, these maps can be challenged, of course, but that ends up going to the Supreme Court, which, depending on the political leanings of that Supreme Court, uh, can make a massive change in the representation of people in Wisconsin, as well as uh, what our national uh, makeup looks like uh, overall. Uh, the last part is uh, Wisconsin, of course, being so hotly contested. Uh, has been uh, a, a part of uh, having to challenge and shut down uh, election fraud allegations. Uh, if those were to continue to be a more prevalent thing, then that uh, having a uh, more liberal uh, Supreme Court justice might uh, have a safer turnout. Uh, it was uh, shut down by a four to three uh, vote last time, um, but it is... Uh, still a major concern for how elections can shape up overall. Uh, the reason why I'm bringing this up is that this race is happening in April 4th, I believe. Uh, and so this is something that we, if you are listening right now, uh, can participate in. Uh, if you're in Wisconsin or if you're not in Wisconsin, you are also able to do things uh, where you can uh, search for online resources uh, to do phone banking, text banking, and reach out uh, to people who are in Wisconsin to be able to let them know of this very, very important vote if they're not aware of it already. So, Braden, being uh, from Wisconsin, I'm going to open up the floor to them to talk about a little bit more of what it's like there and then uh, to the rest of our cast. So, right now, our Supreme Court elections have always been a big deal in Wisconsin because we are such an ideologically split state. We're a purple state, so pretty much in our elections, we see half of everyone turns out for the Democrats and half of everyone turns out for the Republicans. In the Supreme Court, although we are a purple state, we have historically within the past few elections, within the past decade or so, been trending much more blue, even though there is an expectation that these seats will go to the Republican candidate. So in the past three elections, it was an assumption, even though there were vigorous campaigns that at all stops from it, people thought eventually it would go to your traditional standard Republican. But in the end, the Democrats did end up winning it, which has created a lot of enthusiasm for people on the left on Wisconsin for these races. Right now, the races between Janet Protasiewicz and Daniel Kelly, it is easily by far the most important and involved election that I've seen in Wisconsin for the Supreme Court. I was saying earlier, you cannot turn on the TV or YouTube without seeing so many different ads for each individual candidate. 
it's gotten to the point where I think all of us Wisconsin people cannot wait until April 5th, the day after the election, when we never have to see them again. Um, the Republican aligned candidate in the race, Daniel Kelly, he actually served on the Supreme Court before. He was appointed by Republican Scott Walker, who was the governor, who was terrible in every single way. And during his first re-election, he ran a case against a judge by the name of Jill Krasovsky. He lost his re-election. It was a very brutal campaign where he was hit with multiple legal letters because he would viciously lie about Jill Krasovsky. So, for example... She was on a prosecution team. He accused her of publicly letting somebody who committed the rape of a child get off without any jail time. In reality, um, the judge had absolutely nothing to do with that case other than simply being assigned to the afterwards team to handle all of the legal documents after the conviction. So we've known Dan Kelly in Wisconsin for a very long time. He's definitely one of those shady, slimy politicians who'll do whatever it takes to get elected. And he's made it clear that if he is elected, gay marriage, abortion access rights, and um, ending gerrymandering, and even just the safety of our elections, all of that will be on the chopping block. He has sided multiple times with Donald Trump's legal teams to help overturn the results of the 2020 election. And basically, we're looking at a situation where if he is elected, Wisconsin will go back to 1848 when that abortion law was first enacted. So there's a lot of enthusiasm among Gen Z. It's had the highest turnout, the primary for this race, and we cannot look for, we cannot wait until election day and not just so that we can finally be done with it. And then uh, the last thing uh, on the Dan Kelly, for those who are more familiar, and we'll get into this uh, at a later time, is he's also on the uh, Federalist Society, uh, which is uh, for the short version uh, a group of um, conservative judges that are taught how to use uh, various different legal documents to try to align with whatever conservative cause that they're going for. Uh, is there any uh, comment from Christina or Sam of how we want to talk about this? Of Hey, guess what, guys? Every single election cycle so far has been one of the most important of barely in the threat and how that's been uh, on our mental because we have uh, about... Two, two or three minutes that we can talk on that. Awesome. I want to have availability on that. Because for me, good gosh, it's been exhausting. <laughs> it has been exhausting. I think it's been more enthusiastic on another end because a lot of us can vote for the first time or this might be the second or third time that we've been voting. Um, so I think that it's very important to see how, not just how exhausting it could be to see the ads all over the place, um, I'm sure Wisconsin is oversaturated with that, but um, also like the effect on it on like social media and what Gen Z is seeing and how Gen Z is also <laughs> spreading messages to people to vote and stuff. Um, just like how Braden said, like the um, the great turnout from Gen Z is not is like a pattern that we're seeing in different states, especially the purple states. And purple states always freak me out because I'm always like, this could be anything. Anything can happen here. Um, so I think that seeing high turnout for Gen Z is always very, um, reassuring, at least for me, that our voices are being heard because sometimes we're not taken seriously. So, um, our ballots matter just as much as other people. I'm just saying. So I think that that's very important to know. Sure. And then Sam, anything for 
I, I'm not sure how uh, long you've been involved with politics, but just that constant, hey, guess what? This is a major event that's happening. And Yeah, yeah. I feel like every election they, you know, say this is the most important election ever. Um, I mean, when I think about Wisconsin, I think about how it seems to have been the deciding state in the last couple of elections. Uh, you know, like not the deciding state, but it's gone with, you know, it's been a bellwether uh, in 2016. It like barely went for Trump and then barely went for Biden <laughs> in 2020. And um, so, you know, how how it goes in this election, even though it'll be a lot lower turnout, could end up being a indicator of where things are going on the, you know, eternal abortion question, um, you know, moving forward across the country because this seems to be an issue in every state. So if, if they can, if the, you know, the anti-abortion judge can pull out a victory that, that could, that could be a, like a foreboding sign of things to come, I think nationwide. Sure. And then Brayden, I think just on your emotional temperature from all this. I think that after this race, I deeply hate Dan Kelly. I've never met the man, but I hope that I never see him because Dear God, he has destroyed any semblance of happiness for this entire month. Um, actually, in my college campus center earlier today, he had his campaign had a booth and they were trying to canvas people for Dan Kelly. I didn't know that that was happening. I walked past a 40 year old man yells out at me. Hey, are you interested in learning more about Dan Kelly? I just turned around and went no and walked away. <laughs> That's so much courage. Every time I see those canvassers, I'm like stressed out already, like trying to walk past them. So if you were able to say something to them, it's the way you're to go. so brave. Yeah, you're so strong. I mean, doing the canvassing uh, on, on either side, like I, I, I've done uh, in, in the most recent election, I was doing canvassing and it definitely is like a little bit of fear of where it's like, oh, you know, hopefully that'll be fine because you're kind of putting yourself out there for rejection and trying to help. But uh, yeah, I, I I am just hoping that we get to a point where it's like, okay, I'm very enthused for you know this versus that. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely seeming to be a bit of uh, issues. But when the sake of, hey, this is what we're going to be able to do for abortion rights, and this is what we're going to be able to do uh, for the rest of our lives for our body, and this is our biggest chance to actually get things done, uh, that I think is kind of the unfortunate part of it has been every single subsequent election has seemed to be more important than the last. Uh, I would argue that maybe 2020 was a little bit more important than 2022, but still uh, pretty, pretty massive um, ramifications for what's been going on. Uh, but on that topic, uh, I feel going into in here in Florida from Wisconsin, uh, we can talk about, hey, guess what? That week where we went from 21 weeks to now 15 weeks to nine weeks. Whew. Wonder was, oh, sorry, not nine weeks, six weeks. Uh, you know, where are we going next? So, Christina, you want to have a topic on what we're talking there? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so outside of the fact that the 15 week abortion ban was completely, complete nonsense, um, the new addendum, which actually shortened it to six weeks, and I went ahead and I read the bill again um, this before shooting this. Uh, 
the only two exceptions that you have for the six week ban is rape or incest. And if you are in medical danger, um, which has already been proven to not be ethical because people are dying anyways. Um, besides the rape and incest, you need to have proof. You need to have either a police report or a rape kit that's already been reported to the courts. Um, and that's already a shame because not everybody is courageous and strong enough to report such a thing. And sometimes they're not old enough to report such a thing. Um, just for reference, the six week ban would essentially mean depending on where your cycle is, that you're two weeks late from your period. So from a woman's perspective, um, scientifically, your period does not regulate until you're six, week, six years after your menarche, which is basically when you get your first period. Essentially, folks don't get that until 15 to 20, depending on when you get your first period. You know, that affects it. That's very irregular. Um, also, severe chronic stress which is something that a lot of folks have experienced, especially through this pandemic, can throw your cycle off by six months, usually six months from when you severely encounter stress or any sort of trauma that affects your mental health and your biology. For the next six months, you're basically SOL in terms of the consistency of your cycle. So then again, not a lot of folks who are testing themselves for pregnancy know that they are pregnant at six weeks. It's completely unethical. And so this has in terms in hand with other bills that are being brought up in Florida that we fear may pass that I'm not gonna get into. This is severely, severely, severely putting so many people in danger, not just women who are pregnant, but it also affects the family members and the support system of those folks who are able to get pregnant that can't have that decision to themselves anymore. And so that right to privacy is not even that we are, you know, granted a right, a right to privacy by Florida law is just not being acknowledged anymore because of this ban. And so that is what I can say from that. I would like to get other perspective because I feel like you hear a lot about the woman's perspective and the people who are able to menstruate and have children and don't have that right to choose anymore after 15 weeks and potentially not after six weeks, depending on if this ban is passed. I would like to know from y'all what you think, what your feelings are in terms of abortion ban and how you think that will impact you or people you love or what your thoughts are on censor that. Sure. Uh, the biggest things for me when I'm talking about uh, pro-choice uh, arguments is essentially you're, you're having pro-choice versus forced birth. Um, the circumstance of when you're getting a late-term abortion, uh, and this is when you're past that 21-week period, uh, tends to be uh, due to major medical complications anyway. And being able to have it be between the uh, mother and the doctor is a very good way oh. to make that process as painless as possible. Uh, the six weeks, of course, is a de facto ban. Uh, honestly, I'm a little bit confused as to why it's not going to an 
outright ban. I believe it might be due to that being challenged in courts if it goes to an outright ban. But the six-week ban has been the resting point of the de facto, uh, or not de facto, uh, the de jure, um, but the ban that uh, doesn't stop things. Um, of course, the rape and incest, uh, rape kits are also very uh, backlogged, so it's very hard to prove it. And then, oh, you're past uh, that period of time. And then, of course, medically is there uh, to, again, not get sued. Um, as far as uh, how it affects me as an individual, uh, I am someone who I've always wanted to raise kids uh, my entire life. I still intend on doing that. Uh, but the context of having those kids has uh, changed rather dramatically within the past, uh, well, since uh, Rover's weight has uh, been overturned. Uh, now it is uh, dangerous uh, for me to be you know, having a pregnancy with my partner and having to deal with that because if there are complications that arise, uh, that is going to be uh, very, very concerning. Um, and then it's also been a point where again, we went from uh, 21 weeks is what the law of the land was to then 15 weeks uh, immediately after to now uh, it being shortened. I don't see a reason why it would be uh, shortened again. Um, so it's just... Really concerning, really sucky. Uh, I do know that uh, of every single place, um, that every single time there has been a state uh, referendum, uh, abortion rights have been uh, codified, including in Kansas, uh, to protect those rights. The people uh, have spoken where they have had an opportunity to, uh, overwhelmingly in support of it. Uh, and I think it's very clear. And I, it's just another thing where I'm like, I'm tired of being affected by these things. But uh, this is why we got to keep talking and talking about it and not letting it go. Caleb? I appreciate that. Yeah, one part where I definitely agree with you is I don't think there ever truly will be an endpoint. Like you said, we've gone from the 21-week bans to the 15-week bans and now down to the six-week bans. I think ultimately the goal for most of these Republicans in office is a complete outlaw of abortion and access to it. And then, frankly, I think that they're going to move on to things beyond abortion relating to women's rights to privacy and autonomy and being able to make their own health decisions and decision, decisions for themselves. We all know that Republicans, obviously, they always talk about a return to traditional society, traditional family, traditional values, um, the typical 1950s family set. But that means basically no human rights for women other than maybe, hey, you can leave your house every once in a while and speak. Republicans, that is the point where they want to get down to, I feel like. But one message that I have for every single man, every single person who cannot get pregnant is when it comes to abortion, shut up. You have no place to try and judge and tell a woman what she can do with her own body, with a process that you have no experience over. Nothing you can relate to about it. It is not your place. Know your place and stay in it. Yeah, I think for you, Sam. Yeah, I mean, when I hear like the part of the that the, the clause in the bill that says that you have to have a a documentation of the of the rape or incest for you know it to even qualify within the six week thing, and I'm thinking, how is that? You know, those things almost never get legally proven to begin with, let alone within six weeks and not really even six weeks, like potentially even less than that, if you can't even figure out that you're pregnant. I believe so, it's for an exception, but yes. Right. So the exception will almost never apply and they know that yep. when they're making it. And and so when I think about that, it's like, well, what's the point of even putting an exception like that in there when it it's almost physically impossible to even apply it in that amount of time? And so uh, 
all of it is like like everyone said it's it's basically just a ban on abortion completely and i know that that's where they're going with it uh, and that's you know with roe v wade i guess they have license to uh, with the overturn of roe v wade um you know it's not <laughs> none of that is good but that's where we are yeah and i think that they don't realize that it doesn't just affect women it also affects for example folks who are trying to do ivf folks who are trying to do surrogacy because those are also something that affect folks from down to that, or even when they say like just adopt, you know, why would you just say just adopt when I don't see you adopting or trying well, adoption. to invest into that system? And I'm just talking about people in power in general, because then they refuse to, you know, once they're not no longer in utero, it's not an issue anymore. But just like Brayden said, it's really just an attempt to further censor and limit women on what they can or cannot do with their bodies. Yeah. It's just disgusting. Never mind. Yeah. Adoption is also a process that uh, is much more rigorous for being able to qualify for it with lots of thousands of dollars. Um, but it, it is a process. Uh, the you know last thing is like, in terms of knowing place, it is something that does end up affecting you know everyone, but not everyone equally. Uh, if you are, you know, someone that is expecting to have children or planning on doing that, it does uh, also very negatively impact uh, those who are on the lowest parts of uh, poverty to just lower income. Uh, because if you uh, do need an abortion, then you just simply can uh, do a, or not so simply, but you can uh, go and try to leave to a different state or a different country, different area uh, to have it performed. Uh, so you're having additional part of the most vulnerable people being exploited further. Uh, but you know a country that doesn't have uh, as much exploitation on specifically abortion rights? It's Mexico. Woo! Uh, so <laughs> that, that's my segue. Um, yeah, so what we're going to be talking next is essentially, hey, we have uh, countries that are constantly being uh, fear-mongered, uh, specifically uh, Mexico, and talking about how they tend to get a little bit of a bad rap uh, despite... One, uh, sometimes having more progressive uh, policies when it comes to human rights and specifically abortion in the States right now, uh, but also in general and how those uh, crime statistics might be a little bit uh, overblown, uh, especially within different areas. So, Yeah, so as I'm sure a lot of you know, based off of the news and the headlines, within the past month, there was a horrible, tragic situation where four Americans traveled into northern Mexico Unfortunately, they were abducted by a cartel and there were several deaths. And there has been a lot of outrage coming from American politicians towards the Mexican government and essentially saying that, hey, our citizens are being killed in your country by cartels. You're not doing anything. The cartels are still here. Why are you allowing this to continue? But the president of Mexico, even though he is ideologically a leftist, he's almost like Trump in that he cannot sit down when anybody attacks him or his government. So the president of Mexico, Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador, he was doing a press conference a few days ago when he was asked about the criticism coming from American politicians towards Mexico, specifically on the issue of crime and safety. And he began to go into a tangent and he brought up several interesting facts, which are that Mexico remains one of, if not the top tourist destination spots for Americans. Americans keep coming into Mexico and there are over a million American immigrants currently living in Mexico who made the conscious decision to leave the United States and permanently relocate to Mexico. 
And then he made a claim that got a lot of media attention when he said that Mexico is actually safer than the United States of America. Now, a lot of people, as soon as they heard that, they just kind of shut off. That was it. They didn't believe him. So I decided to do a deep dive into the different statistics. And at its face value, that is a lie. Mexico, in terms of the in terms of the data, is not safer than the United States because I just don't want to make claims. I do have the specific evidence. So if you look at the global crime index right now, Mexico is ranked as being the 39th most dangerous country in the world. That's out of over 100. While the United States is ranked as being the 56th most dangerous. So at face value, the United States is more safe than Mexico. But you have to look at crime itself. In the United States, crime is very geographic, and the same goes for Mexico. So, for example, in Mexico City, the murder rate is lower than many other major cities. It's comparable to the murder rate in the United States city of San Antonio. But then if you go into other cities within Mexico, it will be higher. That's just like how in the United States, in our suburbs, there are much lower rates of crime, um, very low rates of violent crime. The majority of the crimes that happen Stones are just property disputes. But if you go into our major cities, that's when it's higher. And if you go into impoverished areas where a lot of people don't have any chance to support themselves unless they do engage in crime, then the rates are obviously higher. And the same can be said for Mexico. So one thing that really, it made me realize how we have this tendency, um, especially privileged people in the suburbs like myself, to look at more impoverished, majority brown nations and simply dismiss them as, oh, they're dangerous, you can't go there, it's not safe. And that really does ignore the facts because the crime rate and patterns of crime in countries like Mexico is so easily comparable to our crime rates and crime patterns here. And one thing that I just had to bring up is one of the key politicians criticizing Mexico throughout this whole process has been Ted Cruz. He's been saying that because he's from Texas on the border, he can see that Mexico is such a barren, violent, horrible place. You can't go there. Otherwise, you'll get shot instantly. I want to bring up that this is the same place that Ted Cruz, when his state was going through a middle of a snowstorm that killed multiple people, shut down the whole electric grid. He decided to go to Mexico. Why? Because he thought that Mexico would be safer than Texas in the United States. So I want to open it up to everyone for comment. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I, I'm not sure that he went because he thought it would be safer. I think he went to like Cancun on vacation because he wanted to go on vacation. But uh, what I, I meant by that was that, sorry to cut you off, just that the infrastructure there would be better because at that time, Texas was in a blackout in terms of things like clean running water, Wi-Fi. Um, I wasn't referring to actual yeah. like door-to-door vandal. <laughs> Yeah, right. I I think it's important to note with like you were saying about how it's geographic with all crime statistics, like the majority of crime in Mexico is concentrated in a few areas. And that's the same in the United States. Like it's not equally distributed throughout the country. So if you're going to a major tourist destination like Cancun or something like that, it's obviously that's not where it is. I think the majority of it, you know, it's, and, but, and, and I think it's also important to recognize that Mexico and a lot of other Latin American countries have made a lot of strides over the last several decades in reducing a lot of cartel violence, a lot of gang violence. And obviously there's still a lot to be done. Like El Salvador is still, uh, you know, has major challenges with that. Um, and, you know, I could go into a whole conversation about their president and, you know, the 
measures he's taken to to reduce their crime. But but um, like the Mexico being such a safe country on the whole, I I feel like is still a relatively recent phenomenon as far as like overall murders per capita and things like that. So that's something that definitely, you know, you could talk about like AMLO's role in that. I know you talked about his comment a little bit earlier. Um, I don't know too much about that, but I'd be curious to know like how they achieve some of those goals. Yeah. And I see that. And I want to just point out also, just because Brayden also brought that up in terms of the um, crime index when you go visit America, you're not going to the suburbs. You're going to New York. You're going to like the urban areas. You're going to Miami Beach. You're going to Los Angeles. You're going to all of these urban areas. So when you go to Mexico, you're not going to the suburbs of Mexico. You're going to a tourist location. So naturally, there's going to be a higher crime rate. So it's not fair, just like Braden said, to look at a brown country or a second or third world country and kind of go, okay, well, I mean, obviously they're brown, so they're going to be more dangerous. I'm not going to go there. Or I'm. this is going to be more dangerous than the United States and just kind of wrap the conversation up at that. Um, especially considering folks our age, if you go on your Snapchat story and your Instagram story during spring break, a lot of them go to Cancun. So then again, it's so... It's so hypocritical sometimes when you go and see who's the first person to go to Mexico, such as Cancun, especially folks of power when their people need them the most. Um, you know sure. who I'm talking about? Yeah. That yeah, and then uh, for, from my perspective, uh, the biggest thing for me, and this is more so talking about uh, my uh, interactions with technology and such uh, things like that, uh, is when it comes to better up. It's I I am. Uh, personally, very against like mar- like trying to categorize large groups of people uh, into certain types of boxes, um, and a big part of that has been uh, just due to I am a gamer, um, but as part of that, I have just end up uh, playing with a lot of people of uh, people who are in my time zone in my general region. Uh, so I will I've made uh, friends with people in Canada. I made people uh, friends in Brazil. Uh, I made friends with people, uh, especially in the UK and Germany, uh, tends to be very prevalent um, from just different online communities. Um, but the areas in which I am you know, forming these friendships is like the barrier for entry on that is do they have access to the Internet? Do they have access to a computer? Um, and, and those uh, you know, perceptions is something where it's like I recognize it's just you know, everyone is kind of uh, people of Earth. And you can definitely have uh, people that are you know, uh, much more scummy and uh, harmful or scared or you know, trying to do what they think is best. Uh, and then you, uh, you have people that are much more positive um, in their outlooks and are able to you know, just be uh, better. So, yeah. What, what, and, and when it comes to media coverage, of course, uh, you have immigration has been a big topic uh, of the uh, past two election cycles. Um, in um, Texas, we had a uh, food shortage on um, uh, vegetables because we let uh, two weeks of vegetables rot to try to uh, stop drug smuggling uh, and people smuggling, and we found nothing. Um, so, yes, it, it is absolutely a xenophobia that should be uh, combated. 
but now, uh, you know, on the topic of you know, immigration, xenophobia, and just trying to see other nations uh, as lesser, uh, let's talk about how we can improve our current situation and our current nation with discussing unions, which is on the topic with Sam. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I, yeah, all right. I guess I'll talk a little bit about what I had planned to speak on, um, which is about particularly the union that I'm part of. And this is a little bit more Florida specific. So I apologize to anybody who's not in this state right now. Um, yeah. So, um, so I am a member of the Unite Here Hospitality Union, uh, specific, which is the largest hospitality union in the nation, with, representing over 300,000 workers in the hospitality and tourism sector. Um, and our local down here in South Florida is, is Local 355. And so I want to share a little bit about a new organizing drive that we're doing with, you know, the with through the union that I'm a part of. Um, and it is, I'm just going to like, I have a little bit of notes here. So I'm looking away. Um, so I, I'm specifically trying to talk to like young, energetic, labor-driven Florida residents who are, you know, maybe it, like graduating from school soon or looking for a new job, uh, something like that. And they, the reason for that is because our union is trying to expand the number of specifically hotels and specifically in South Florida and greater Orlando that are part of the locals in those two metro areas as far as uh, about Unite Here Union. So we represent, like I said, nationwide, we represent over 300,000 workers across the U.S. and Canada, um, of which about 33,000 of those are in Florida and about 7,000 of that 33,000 are here in South Florida, part of Local 355. So just to talk a little bit about Florida's background as a right to work state, uh, that essentially means we're not the only one. There's dozens of right to work states. Michigan actually just overturned their right to work, which is really interesting. Um, but uh, essentially what a right to work state means that unionized workplaces in that state cannot formally mandate you to join the shop's union. Like if you start a job at a unionized workplace, you have to be given the option to not sign the union card and not pay dues, not participate in union elections, not do any of their political organizing, anything like that. Um, you know, and, and while that sounds like in theory, it's all about freedom. It really is just trying to pit workers against each other because then it's going to fear monger to the new people about here's what a union you know, is all about. And we're going to take the, you're going to take your money and they're going to, you know, and this one's in the union and this one's not. And it's, it's so, so it really just dampens the power of labor unions. And we have, and that bears out in the numbers because the Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that as of 2022, only 4.5% of Florida's workforce were members of a labor union. And, uh, when you expand that number to include people who are part of like unions or employee associations that act under union contracts, it's still only 5.6%. So basically about one in every 20 workers in the state of Florida is unionized. And, um, you know, that's, that's terrible. <laughs> that's one of the lowest rates in the country. Um, and you know, we're talking about nationwide union rates. I think the highest state is like Hawaii and even they're only about 25% unionized. So um, it's really depressing. And, but nevertheless, that's about, uh, our Unite Here, our hospitality union is about 8% of those unionized workers in the state of Florida. So, you know, we have a lot to work against with these rights, with these rights workforces that are, you know, occupying our legal system. Uh, but, in South Florida specifically, some of the largest hospitality and tourism related uh, job job creators, employment centers are are part of this union, like Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport, Miami Hollywood, uh, Miami International Airport, 
Lone Depot Park, home of the Miami Marlins, Gulfstream Casino, and big resorts like the Fountain Blue on Miami Beach and the Diplomat Resort in Hollywood, which is where I work, actually. Um, so what can you do to help? I'm glad you asked. Uh, there is an official posting on Idealist, and you can Google this. Just Google, like, Unite Here, Idealist, Organizing Apprenticeship, whatever, Unite Here, Local 355. I'll give more information in a bit. Um, and what we're doing is trying to do this drive to get these young, to get young people or, you know, I mean, you don't have to be young, but generally they're going to be young. And, um, and, and that's, you know, trying to, to, to get everybody in so that, so that we have more people that are training on how to organize their workplaces so that ultimately we can expand the repertoire of unionized hotels. Cause so many, uh, you know, hotels and, and casinos and things like that, even in South Florida are still not unionized. And that's a major, you know, that's a major problem. Um, because that's like the last front, you know, that we have against some of the worst working conditions, especially after the pandemic, um, for, you know, workers who are overwhelmingly immigrants and people of color. And, um, so I, I just want to talk a little bit about what the difference is that a union can make in, you know, in, in having a unionized workplace in the hospitality industry. And that a lot of that was born out last summer in a big fight that happened um, at a couple of big properties, the Diplomat in Hollywood and the Fountain Blue on Miami Beach. The Fountain Blue is a pretty historic, like iconic name. So even if you're not in Florida, you might've heard that name before. Um, and what happened last summer was that the pandemic, and specifically I'll talk about where I work at the Diplomat. Uh, last summer before the before the pandemic, they were owned by this this large asset management company called Brookfield Asset Management. That's a Canadian multinational firm that has over seven hundred and twenty five billion dollars in assets under management, and they own a number of like nuclear power plants and resorts and real estate and private equity, all that. And so they closed the resort for a period of about fourteen months, left many of the workers without any recourse for, you know, a lot of them didn't have extended unemployment benefits, and these are people that have been there for 15, 20 years in some cases. They, you know, they couldn't just switch jobs overnight. They didn't give anybody any updates on when they were going to reopen the resort, and they claimed that it was because, you know, it's a convention hotel, so they weren't having conventions during the pandemic. I mean, I guess you can buy that, but in Ron DeSantis's Florida, like very few people were legitimately put out of a job for a very long time because of COVID pros and cons of that obviously can be weighed at another time. But, um, but essentially they left a lot of these workers without recourse. And then when they did reopen after 14 months, they, um, you know, they, they, they were at like half of the staffing capacity that they, that they had before. So, you know, at a, a resort that might've used to have 1500 employees now we're only bringing back seven or 800. And to this day, like many of the departments are still not filled and so this is a, this is a huge problem for, um, for, you know, just like the overall running of the resort, but it's also because you're giving employees the jobs of three people to do, you know, what they, what used to be the job of one person. And this, this, so, so this big fight came to a head last summer when, uh, there was like an extension of the collective bargaining agreement and stop me if I'm rambling too much. Well, um, let's, let's get into a discussion about this. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just going to finish up with the thing about the, the, fight that happened. So they essentially got 99% of the workers to, uh, who were unionized at the, at the property, which is about 450 of them to vote to authorize a strike. And they were literally about to shut down the hotel. Um, they were occupying the cafeteria. They were occupying the like access ramp. They were trying to literally shut it down. And, and, um, they were demanding $20 an hour for non-tipped workers at the time staff, like housekeepers were making like as low as $13 an hour. And, you know, in a modern 
post-pandemic inflation world, that's just not a tenable wage, especially here in South Florida, where rents can be $2,000 a month or more. And so, um, you know, the union, because of the union, they won a lot of their benefits and, and they, they, they were, they won, uh, they were trying to take away a lot of the employee perks. They got to keep a lot of that and they got some major raises for workers. So what, you know, all of this is to say what we need from people who want to, you know, join this organizing drive is if that's something that you're interested in to contact, you know, the, go on, like I said, go on that posting, Unite Here, Local 355, and um, organizing apprenticeship. And I actually have the permission of the vice president of the local to give out her phone number. Um, so I will do that. Uh, it is 305-952-0392. And uh, her name is Candace Lamb, and she would be happy to hear from anybody who might be willing to do this. So that's sort of my my bridge feel. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So no, that that's that's fine. Um, so for the next week, uh, our main topic is going to be talking about unions uh, and labor, how unions uh, interact with labor, uh, the benefits and pro- like the pros and cons uh, that can happen with unions. Uh, we'll get into more details on that. Um, for just a quick, you know, two sentences of how we feel. I am in the boat of. Uh, you know, unions in general uh, are pretty good, and that increased membership does allow for a lot of increased bargaining power, uh, even if it does lead to a little bit more friction uh, within the economic workplace. Uh, and then I'll leave that to Brayden and Christina, and then we'll get into our main topic. For yeah, I want to bring up something that happened in Wisconsin, um, my own backyard, home expertise. Which is that in the early 2010s, a lot of public sector workers in Wisconsin, so teachers, firefighters, snowplow drivers, they were heavily unionized. There was a budget crisis. And the governor, Scott Walker, passed a bill that completely shut down the rights of unions to exist in the public sector in Wisconsin. So overnight, teachers mainly went from having a union to not having one, and same with all other public sector workers. And as expected, salaries went down, wage increases went down, working conditions became much more horrible to the point where a lot of people actually left the state. So if you can get into a union, I highly recommend it. If you, if your workplace is holding a vote on whether to get rid of a union, do not do it because speaking from personal experience, that will end up horribly for you, no matter what bosses say. And Christina? I think that unions are definitely essential um, and they are hard to keep alive, especially in a state like Florida. I cannot speak for Wisconsin because I don't live there, but especially in Florida where it costs an arm and a leg to live adequately. um, I believe that there should be stronger focuses on unions because I think especially with our generation, where we're not going to take a lot of what is given to us unless we work hard to deserve it, such as unions and strength in numbers, I think that it's definitely going to have to be a priority for a lot of folks who are entering the workforce professionally out of college and into like high school and other people who are of the working class who need unions. Sure. Okay. Uh, So for our... Uh, main topic today. Again, we'll be getting a lot more into labor and unions uh, in 
uh, next week. Uh, so that is our little preview for that. Uh, we're going to be talking on uh, media literacy. Uh, first, um, Brendan is going to be talking about uh, basically our historical media literacy of how media trust has changed uh, more and more. Uh, then I'm going to be talking about uh, little bits of differences between media trust uh, between generations and how uh, it gets impacted uh, for the rest of us. And then uh, Christina is going to uh, finish us off uh, with talking about uh, what, uh, how, how technology is uh, impacting us. And we'll go to a greater discussion topic of how we uh, personally uh, deal with media literacy uh, within our own lives. So uh, let's go. So if you look at it all throughout history, the question of what is acceptable media to get and consumer information, that has changed so much throughout the years. So early on in human history, there was pretty much for the Western world, only one source where you could get your information from and it would be trustworthy and valid. And that was the Bible. And then books started getting published with the invention of the printing press and books were looked upon as you can't completely trust them because anybody can write a book anybody can publish one and you have no way of knowing if it's valid. And then books started to kind of take off as we obviously know. And then newspapers came around and newspapers were looked down on as they're very radical. There's absolutely no control over them. You can print lies, you can print all sorts of slander and you cannot trust them in any way, shape or form. Now, obviously as our generation knows, Newspapers are very boring nowadays, and they can generally be trusted for information. And then TV came along, and primarily at the start, TV consisted just of different news channels. And it, they were always kind of looked down upon as opposed to the traditional media of newspapers and books, because live streaming TV, it was completely new. Nobody had experience with it before. And most people just flat out did not trust it and stuck to their traditional media. And now after television, we're witnessing the rise of, particularly among our generation, consuming information through social media. And right now, getting your information and your news through social media is heavily looked down upon. We've all had that crazy aunt who gets her news on vaccines from Facebook. I think that's the best example to go by. But we have seen that news on social media actually has been valid and it's getting better and better with each year. And something that I've been interested in looking at is what will that next medium be? Because first it was the Bible, then other books, then newspapers, then TV, now social media. What will be the new thing that eventually we will come to look down upon and then we'll accept? Because I guarantee you that 100 years from now, it will be completely valid and acceptable to get most of, if not all of your information from social media for the ease and convenience of it. And will we ever learn our lesson and stop always hating upon the new source of information instead of just looking objectively at it? Because obviously it is important to rate everything, see, is it credible? Can it be trusted? But if it withstands the test, I don't think it would be very progressive of us to just choose to optionally stay in the past and stay in history and not evolve with our methods of obtaining new information. Okay. I definitely see that. Yeah. So for uh, my segment uh, in terms of the you know, new information uh, is talking about uh, media literacy, uh, not in terms of how much 
much we sorry it's in terms of touching on how much we trust uh, various types of uh, media. Uh, this data is from 2022, um, but right now we're in a circumstance where uh, only 26 percent of Americans have a favorable opinion of the news media, which is the uh, lowest level that has been reported in uh, five years, and 53 uh, percent hold an unfavorable view of uh, news media. With the uh, difference uh, in between being just uh, neutral on that. Uh, and this has been across all uh, political affiliations where uh, Americans have been uh, a lot less favorable uh, at, compared to surveys conducted in uh, late 20, sorry, late 2019, uh, early 2020. Um, but this uh, has been especially um, drastic where uh, it's actually been Democrats have been more trusting of news media than uh, Republicans. Uh, when it comes to national media, um, national media is uh, reported the, le uh, the least when we're talking about television, um, where that has the least amount of favorability. Um, but uh, meanwhile, on the ground, uh, news organizations tend to have a lot more uh, favorability when it comes to news. Uh, and that is due to the size of the institutions uh, being a little bit more concerned. However, there are uh, definite flaws that can uh, come up, especially when you're trying to get more money from clicks and trying to have uh, more um, time active from news algorithms. Um, for uh, millennials and Gen Z, uh, we are reported to be a lot less trusting uh, and a lot more skeptical of any sort of news outlet that we have. Uh, this has been in contrast uh, with older generations where Gen X uh, has l s uh, slightly less because they grew up in a time without the fairness doctrine and boomers being the most trusting uh, of these institutions uh, be uh, from wherever it can be. Uh, I do want to touch on the fairness doctrine, which was uh, enacted uh, between 1949 to 1987, uh, where it was then repealed um, and how that basically allowed for information to be uh, talked about for one side uh, on things uh, being discussed. Uh, so those institutions like television uh, has basically been able to be not as trustworthy uh, compared to uh, even uh, on the ground news reporting. Uh, however, the big things that we, uh, when we're talking on social media and media literacy, uh, is we are very, very bad at fact-checking things if they come from other people that we know and trust. Uh, the basic example is, again, in the, the case of like an aunt sharing um, COVID, uh, like uh, vaccine misinformation, uh, because you know she is your aunt and you trust her for a longer period of time, you are far more susceptible uh, to trusting that inherently. Uh, also, things that confirm our own biases is a very big component of that. Um, and that uh, the media literacy uh, from generation to generation is not great. It's just more so how skeptical you can go. Because for our, our generation, we can end up being a little bit too skeptical, which then allows us to be more susceptible uh, to conspiracy theories because we're not uh, having faith in any institutions. And then, uh, Christina, do you want to talk a bit on that rise of technology and how that is uh, affecting us? Yes, definitely. So just to tie what we've spoken about together, um, definitely between the difference between Gen Z and the 
earlier generations such as, you know, Gen X, millennial, um, definitely boomer is how tech has affected us. We were born with technology. They were born before technology. So they are more of the, they have to adapt to it. And we kind of were already born into it and we already went through what they had gone through. Like they went through so many different, like between having to dial up their internet and stuff like that. Like we didn't go through all of that. And so I think that we're so, we're more literate in media because I think that we're able to filter through a lot of the things um, that is considered fake news. Um, Then again, I don't want to get into it, but you know, between the whole Dominion lawsuit versus Fox news and the lies about the election, other things such as that. Um, I won't get into a tangent about that today, but that's definitely something that I think that our generation was able to detect as well, um, especially with the Facebook ants who will read articles about the COVID vaccine or other things such as that. Um, I think that we're able to filter through that. Um, I think that, I don't think it's a great job, but I think that different social media outlets are trying to do what they can in terms of filtering through fake news and misinformation and also trying to provide those resources when they detect that someone's speaking about a certain topic, such as like the COVID vaccine. If they detect that you are speaking or posting about it, they try to provide that resources so people have the option to inform themselves. Um, but then again, I think that social media is going to be a stronger presence in terms of news, especially because Gen Z prefers short-term content much more than other generations. So for example, I know a lot of people from Gen Z who go on Snapchat every morning and they check their snaps and then you go on the Daily Mail because the Daily Mail has their collection of, this is what, this is how you're going to catch up with your news today because the Daily Mail and other news outlets have that outlet through Snapchat to go and give you the whole day's worth of news and a spam of like 10 clicks. And for example, on TikTok, you have like different news outlets who wrap up the news for you in 15 seconds or less. You have other channels like Under the Desk News and Washington Post and other places like that, or journalists specifically going on TikTok because they know that they also gets regurgitated onto Instagram and other platforms that provide that short-term content now. And I think that that's one of the ways that Gen Z is also receiving their media because I don't, I can't tell you when the last time I read a newspaper was, honestly. And I think that for a lot of millennial and Gen X, they read magazines and other newspapers and they had to go and look for their information in the encyclopedia and other things like that or they had to wait like minutes for their computer to turn on and connect to the internet to google something whereas a lot of gen z are not even going through google at this point a lot of them are going through social media and trying to find these things they're treating things such as social media as a search engine um and i think that that relationship and dependency that we have on technology can also be dangerous but it is definitely an observation worth using critical thinking and seeing where the pattern can go next. Sure. And, and it's just something I want to clarify is you said when you were talking about our media literacy, you said the word, I think a lot. Did you find uh, sources and citations a yes. lot? Because what I found was we, we 
it was not as much because we were born in, well part of it was we were born into it but it was due to it's been literally incorporated into our education of how to be navigating the internet uh from especially for me is when i was in grade school uh of hey here's how you parse through things and also uh, in the chat i saw or did we ask to talk about the tiktok in congress uh we that um happened i believe it was yesterday uh or today very recently so we do not have uh, up-to-date information on that um but that that's not a particular thing discussion anyway back to this um the but yes i i just want to clarify if we did have a citation on that because you said I i'll go ahead that. yeah i will send it over so that we can have that projected or have okay. it in the description so folks can have that yeah i i'm, I'm just making sure that it wasn't uh, i'm just making sure it was based off of your dialect because i am also very used to caveating a lot of things that i say uh, but yeah. you are see, saying it from uh, this is what I have found, not necessarily I think. Yes. Are we correct on that? I'm okay. working on that. Yeah, we're working on that. Sounds good. Okay. So yeah, the uh, you know big thing that I, I want to um, then talk about this, uh, and Sam, I don't believe had uh, as much information um, on that because he was uh, preparing more for the unions, was um, talking about what we personally do uh, within our lives to try to help our media literacy. Uh, for me, I uh, try to have my media literacy done with uh, a few different uh, YouTube channels. So I have a YouTube channel uh, that'll watch, which uh, I'll name where it's the Philip DeFranco show. That is weekly um, you know, news coverage where it shows up uh, on a daily basis. And I'm able to get basically big information, but I know he's very American centric. I am familiar with his uh, political biases. Uh, and I am able to get that to be, okay, here's what information is coming on. I don't care as much on the celebrity news, but it comes out. The next thing that I tried to do is uh, Sir Swag. He is a YouTuber from Australia, so he's able to be impartial to uh, United States politics, and he is good for uh, international politics um, and also just world events that are coming on because I try to be up to date, and it'll be, hey, here are major things that are happening, uh, not just in the U.S., but geopolitically. Uh, and then also for geopolitically, I tend to watch uh, TLDR News and their uh, channels. Uh, they are based out of the United Kingdom, um, and they tend to try to do things also very unbiasedly. And I try to do that for this is my main way of getting most news. Uh, but I will also occasionally be on places uh, such as Reddit is the only uh, other substantial social media that I use, uh, where I will see news articles of things that are happening. That's where I'll also find stuff um, relating to uh, specific acts that are in Florida. And then uh, I also will find things um, for the final app that I'll use as a dedicated news app is uh, the Ground News app uh, to try to keep my biases in check uh, and trying to uh, look at information, not necessarily based on biases, uh, but off of their uh, factuality uh, reporting. So those are the things, the steps that I take typically. What do you guys do? Usually what I do is that whenever I'm getting a piece of information, so whether that be in the form of a YouTube video or an article, I look at who's putting it out there and what are their biases. So are they a corporation because then there's a profit motive? Are they a nonprofit? Because then it can, there can be a bias towards whoever is funding them through their donations. And essentially after that, I just try and get as much information from as many sources as possible and then simmer it down to the middle, um, the core message that every single outlet is reporting on. 
because I find that usually that helps to remove the different biases that are put in place with the reporting of it. And it allows me just to get the message, the core information, and then I can form my own opinions based off of that because I am being given a very blank slate in terms terms of what's being provided to me. Yeah, I, I would argue that, um, you know, newspapers still have a have a a vital role to play, even if they are primarily through a digital medium. Like I still almost on a daily basis get, you know, New York Times and uh, I don't know, Washington Post or things like that. Even if you're getting them, you know, digitally, it's it's they're still uh, there's still publications that are like legacy outlets, as they call them. And, um, you know, they have a whole host of problems on their own, I think, of uh, sort of being like the arbiter of what gets to be discussed and the lens that they frame things through. But uh, ultimately, I think like media literacy from uh, all generations is something that does have to be taught in like a formal educational setting. I think, I think in Finland, they're doing like some new program in their public schools to try to teach like more, have like formal courses on media literacy uh, so that students don't go into the world susceptible. Because I think like, even though older generations get a lot of flack for, you know, being susceptible to those spammy links that make no sense. And then they send it out to their whole family thinking like, I don't know, you know, there's uh, chips being implanted in the, in like cornflakes or something. And then they, you, you know, that's, that's, that's true that that's more likely to be like a boomer who's susceptible to that. But I also see on Twitter on occasion, factually incorrect tweets that get hundreds of thousands of likes. And, you know, those are mostly young people. So things might be framed a little bit more coyly now and a little, they're a little bit smarter about how they make it seem or they dress it up in language that's more friendly to like the younger brain. But ultimately like, misinformation can happen. I think anybody is susceptible to it unless you do your research. I feel like I've even been susceptible to it at times. If there's something I don't know what I'm looking at and it looks credible, you know, I have no, you know, no reason to, to doubt it. So we, we all need that education. Um, I think. Yeah. I think that misinformation knows no, knows no boundaries from age, because I think that just as young as, literal iPad kids and as old as our aunts from Facebook that aren't that old, my I defend them. I think that everyone needs to be able to learn cultural literacy and media literacy for their own safety and the safety of others because the spread of misinformation is very dangerous. Yep. And again, just going back to uh yeah, news versus social media versus things is that is why when like trying to look into something, you want to check biases and then you want to be for what is not going to be reporting. Another uh, big tip that I know is opinion pieces. You always want to try to see if you are reading a news article is an opinion piece. Uh, if you see an article where it has a clickbaity, uh, like not thumbnail, but um, title, uh, you it is typically a good idea to at least look and read. Uh, I believe it is 2% of people uh, are actually will click through to read past what is the article headline. Uh, a lot of, not a lot of times, but sometimes you will have an article that has a very outrageous headline and then it'll have a much more nuanced take within the article. And the article itself is not factual, but it's being shared around for those clicks. 
Uh, and those are, of course, uh, all things to be uh, aware of um, when you are trying to navigate the web. Uh, the other thing, of course, you see a uh, article that is coming from a family member. You want to, uh, again, just not necessarily uh, trust them and do try to double check uh, and be willing to raise that eyebrow. Uh, and that is your kind of best way that you can be uh, trying to fight um, misinformation as it comes up. And that is uh, the information that I am uh, was also able to find to kind of wrap this up to be like, hey, you, the viewer, what can you do? Um, and with that being said, uh, that is our uh, big wrap up of the information that we had. This is our format. We will, of course, refine this um, as we go forward. But any other closing statements uh, from the team? Just do your research. <laughs> so? I think the best advice for news is just follow the money trail, see who's paying for your outlet, and then you will find out what bias you're being presented. And if you can support your local newspapers, they are dying and they're very important for anti-corruption where they do some of the some of the hard-hitting journalism that a lot of the national outlets can't do. And unfortunately, people are not supporting them like they used to. Definitely. All right. So, guys, this will wrap our first uh, Gen Z report. It's a learning experience. We're kind of going to be, you know, adjusting it as we go. Uh, but, you know, of course, feel free to send us emails at um, generationalchange at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. Let us know if you have any suggestions. But we will be back. Um, what do you mean you hate freedom of the press? Oh, come on. Get out of here, Charles in charge. Um, so we will be back next Thursday. We will go live at nine. And the in-depth topic we're going to be focusing on next week is going to be labor and what that what the impact is on this generation. And that's something we really haven't gotten into very much because we tend to think of it as an older generational issue, but it really is not. So we're going to be talking about that next week and we're going to be growing as we go. So guys, make sure to check us out again and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.